This podcast is brought to you by John Brandt, the author of a new book entitled Nincompoopery, Why Your Customers Hate You and How to Fix It. Please listen to podcast number 744, where John and Greg speak about how, in business, we became such nincompoops. In this informative and humorous discussion, John covers how he's leveraged research across thousands of companies to show leaders how to find and kill the corporate stupidity that drives customers crazy. He also offers concrete examples of how any organization, large or small, and regardless of industry, can innovate in ways that delight customers and attract top-level talent. Learn about the hundreds of companies John has worked with to help them outwit competitors as he shares his unique blueprint for success. Please listen to podcast number 744 with author John Brandt about his new book, Nincompoopery. You can also learn more about John by visiting www.johnrbrandt.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Scott, as I do every time I come on these shows, I, I probably sound like a broken record at the beginning. Um, I thank the listeners because for the last uh, almost 14 years um, and 740 plus podcasts, people continue to come back and listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. And I truly appreciate everybody out there who comments, who uh, asks questions, and actually gets in touch with the authors and purchases their books. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And today joining us from Vancouver is Scott Young. And Scott is the author of a new book called Ultra Learning, uh, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. Good day to you, Scott. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate having you on the show and spending some of your valuable time. And uh, we were just talking before we got on the show that uh, my link uh, to Scott was Cal Newport. And Cal is the author of a new book called Digital Minimalist and Deep Work. And um, he gives an accolade to Scott's book at the top of that. Now, Scott, I'm going to let people know something about you. He's a writer who undertakes interesting self-education projects, such as attempting to complete MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months and learning four languages in one year. And as I said, he lives in Vancouver. And the book and your approach uh, is really fascinating. And one thing about it is this is a, I, I actually almost call it a how-to book, Scott, because it really does help people um, figure out to become ultra learners. And why don't we start there? Uh, you mentioned sure. that to stay ahead in these times of technological advancement and economical change, that we all need to embrace becoming ultra learners. And I think for our listeners to put some context around it, what do you define as an ultra learner? What What is that? Yeah, so it's not surprising if you've never heard the term before, because this was an example of, you know, what happens with a lot of authors where you see something and there doesn't seem to be a good word out there for it. So you just have to kind of come up with a new term. And so the idea for ultra learning was basically observing people who were the overlap of two segments. So one was people who take on what I call self-directed learning projects. So people who you know, the normal way we think about education is go to school, you sit in a classroom, the teacher tells you what to do, and you just sort of passively follow along, and then maybe one day you graduate. 
Whereas the idea of self-directed learning is that this is driven by the person themselves. So someone who wants to learn a language, someone who wants to become really good at public speaking, someone who wants to, you know, master the art of building a business or, or what have you coming from the person themselves. So they're designing the whole effort of becoming really good or becoming more knowledgeable about something. The second aspect was people who were really intensely uh, focused on how do they do that effectively. So I pick a lot of, you know, fairly dramatic stories in the book of people who take on fairly extreme projects, but obviously this applies to someone even if you have more humble goals. But the idea basically being that I wanted to look at not just people who have happened to learn something, you know, they stumbled across learning it over 10, 20 years, but people who systematically broke down the art of getting good at something in a reasonable amount of time or to a reasonable amount of effectiveness, and then look and see, are there any principles that we can derive from those that we could apply to getting good things in our own lives? Well, you certainly have lots of examples in the books and lots of stories, but Let's go to your own story, because obviously a good writer is also somebody who experiences this themselves. And in 2012, you decided to try to learn MIT's four-year undergraduate computer science curriculum in 12 months. So that's a four-year course. You said, okay, I'm going to take it on in 12 months. You said you were Mm -hmm. successful in passing the final exams for 33 classes, and completing the required programs and you did a TEDx talk on this. Um, Mm -hmm. Was this 2012 event with the MIT challenge, then the year without English and then the 30 day portrait drawing challenge, you know, you've got lots of them up at your website and I'm going to encourage my listeners to go to Scott Young, S-C-O-T-T-H young.com and check Mm -hmm. out his blog. Uh, was that your first attempt or had you, had you always been, you know, this uh, smart guy who could always pick things up? <laughs> well, so it's kind of funny because uh, as I kind of talk about in the book, um, my first sort of introduction to this world of ultra learning was kind of in a moment of difficulty. So not really, you know, just coming from, oh, I'm so great, but really from I'm struggling at this and I'm seeing someone do it seemingly much better than I did. So so I did an actual undergraduate degree in business, and uh, one of the years I went on exchange to France uh, to study abroad for a year. And you know, this is a this is an opportunity a lot of people don't get. And so I was very excited not only to just live in another country for a year, but I really wanted to come back speaking French. And so I am going to France, and I'm going there, and I'm studying, and it's not going super well. Like I'm I'm working really hard at learning French. So not just, you know, taking all my business school classes, but trying to study French and trying to learn it on the side. And yet it always feels like a struggle to speak with people. And so this was kind of a frustrating thing. And I was kind of complaining about it to a friend back home. And he said, well, have you heard of Benny Lewis? And I said, no, I haven't heard of Benny Lewis. And it was kind of funny because now Benny Lewis has become somewhat famous, but at the time he had just started his blog. So I was really lucky that my friend introduced me to him. But basically, Benny Lewis has a website about his own ultra learning challenge to become fluent in three months. So his website was called Fluent in Three Months, and he would go around from country to country trying to learn a language as well as he could in three months' time. And so this was very much kind of like a startling sort of goal for me because I've already been in France for more than three months and I'm certainly not fluent. And so I knew I had to meet this guy and kind of see what he was about and see what he was doing. And so this was sort of 
not only really a moment of inspiration and just sort of seeing that, you know, that, that learning effectively or learning more efficiently could be possible, because even at the time, I was already blogging about studying related topics for a couple of years on my blog. So this was not that I was completely unfamiliar with the idea that, you know, you might be able to study more effectively. But this was the first time that I saw someone, what I could say, really thinking outside the box. So my ideas had always been constrained to, well, how do you do well to get, you know, a good grade on your class or, you know, finish uh, an exam or, or pass a, a, you know, a certain difficult test or, or this was sort of how my mind was organized was within the boundaries of, you know, what you could do in a normal school system. Whereas Benny Lewis was not only taking on really ambitious goals, but, you know, his approach to learning languages wasn't at all like what you would do in a typical, you know, French or German class. He was approaching it largely through immersion. He was doing direct practice. He was kind of creating his own system for learning it. And I thought this was really fascinating, not only because, you know, he's taking on these really interesting challenges and he's learning all these languages, but also because he was blogging about it. And I was blogging. And again, I was blogging even on studying related topics. And so, you know, doing the MIT challenge seemed like, I don't know where the idea specifically originated, but the you know, definitely Benny Lewis was a big inspiration for, for encouraging that, that kind of idea of a project, which I, again, I started in uh, September 2000, or sorry, October 2011 and finished in uh, September 2012. Well, it, you know, you've got a lot of fascinating stories in this book. And um, let's, let's kind of talk about, you know, James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, he mm -hmm. does the foreword to your book. And yeah. he states that your principles by using your principles, he was able to become a best-selling author. So great mm -hmm. accolades for you. What are those principles for the listeners out there? And how do sure. you help someone gain the skills to become an ultra learner? So the idea behind the principles, uh, I'll just explain because there's nine of them in my book and they kind of make the bulk of the book uh, of sort of outlining these principles of learning or, or really of getting good at things. I think sometimes when we talk about learning, people have an overly narrow definition of that, that it involves, you know, studying for tests or memorizing things. And so they don't realize that they're always learning things. They're always trying to get better at things in their life, whether it's their job or their relationships or their health or, or what have you. And so the ideas of these principles were that I wanted to draw not only from my own personal experiences, but many of these stories of other ultra learners that I document in the book. And then also I wanted to ground these in cognitive science. So I wanted each of the principles to have some relation to the actual science that has been done on learning. And so often the science that's been done on learning points to sort of surprising things, things that you you know, maybe you have some intuition about, but a lot of people get wrong when they're actually going about learning things. So there's there's nine principles, and I, I can list them off um, later if you'd like. But, you know, one yeah. of the examples of these principles that uh, I think people make a lot of mistakes, particularly students, is a principle uh, known as directness. And so directness is the idea that um, people are fairly bad at what's known as transfer. So transfer is a psychological concept that refers to when you learn something in one situation, say in a classroom, and then you have to apply it in a different situation, say in real life. And there are just countless studies going back really over 100 years showing that we're, we tend to be worse at this than most people would assume. And so the downside of this, the real disadvantage, is that a lot of classroom learning 
turns out to be less effective than we hope because what we really care about with learning is actually transfer. We really care that you learn something in the classroom and you're able to apply it in real life. And it turns out in many situations, even sometimes the best students are not able to do this. And so one of the principles of ultra learning, therefore, is what I call directness, which is the kind of inversion of this problem that if transfer is difficult, then you will get a lot better results if you learn with some connection to the direct thing that you want to use the skill in from the very beginning. So the classic example of learning a language is that you should learn a language by having some conversations with people very early on, not simply studying for months or maybe even years before you get to that first conversation. You know, you know, it's very practical. It makes logical sense. And, you know, you tell a fascinating story because you have story after story in the book, but this one story about Eric Barone, who had just graduated right. from the University of Washington, he wanted to start his own video gaming company. Mm-hmm. And all of us out there know who've been in computer business, the costs associated with, you know, putting a gaming company together. Can you impart that story? Uh, to yeah, yeah, of course. It, it's a, well, so it's a this story, story, this story fascinated me because um, I think it's one of those things that it's kind of almost difficult to uh, to overrate how difficult this is. Like, it's very difficult to you know to see. I think the difficulty of what he actually accomplished. So. He decided, like, he has a game company, I guess, sort of now, I guess he has a game company, he has millions of dollars, but um, his goal was primarily to make a game. And for most people, and most studios, and really how video games are made in the modern era, you know, we're not in that, you know, Tetris and Pong era where you could have a single developer. Most games are made by teams. And even indie games, even independent games that aren't built by big studios of thousands of people are usually still built by, you know, maybe a dozen people or more. And the reason is that to make a video game requires mastering a lot of very different skills and not just to be okay at them, but to do them at a level where they are professionally competent. So that means artwork. Any modern video game has tons and tons and tons of graphical assets that need to be done professionally. Programming. Video game programming is not trivial. It's actually, you know, quite a difficult aspect of programming. It's a lot more difficult than a lot of simpler tasks for programming. Um, You need to do music and sound effect design, which again, like how many people are good at all of these different things? And so Eric Barone decided that he wants to make this game. And instead of doing the normal route, which would be, okay, let's pull together a small team, book 10 people, maybe raise some money or, you know, do whatever you need to do, finance it to, you know, make an actual commercial game. He decides, no, I'm just going to work on it 100% on my own over five years. And all the things that I'm not good at, I'm just going to get really good at them. So things like art, which was in Barone's case, his kind of particular weakness, he was just, you know, not very good at doing pixel art, which was the kind of art that was for this game. And so he just, you know, obsessively mastered it, not only doing sort of this deliberate practice of doing it over and over again and breaking down what he likes and doesn't like about it, working on those specific elements, but also, you know, reaching things like color theory and all these sort of more abstract ideas that he could pull together to improve his craft. And I mean, this was just one element of the game that he made, and uh, he was very successful with it. So his game is called Stardew Valley, uh, released, and at the time I was interviewing him, which was shortly after it was released, I think it had sold maybe three and a half million copies, but now it's come out on the Nintendo Switch and other platforms, so I would be very surprised if it hasn't sold in the 
you know, several million plus range uh, by now. Great story because it just shows his level of commitment to doing that. Let's talk about that because, you mm-hmm. know, you address the issue of time commitment in the book that right. ultra learning might take and that some of the listeners out there right now might be saying, hey, well, I'm dissuaded from doing this just because, you know, how much time is this going to take, right. Scott? What advice do you have for yeah. somebody who wants to take this on part time? Oh, yeah, this is, this right? is a great question because I think what you're hitting in is really important. That it's I, I pick some of these stories and some of these extreme examples because I think they provide really good exemplars for a concept. Just as if you know, if you were to think about an entrepreneur, someone who you know has this sort of unicorn startup might be a really good exemplar for understanding business strategy even if you just want to run a mom and pop shop, or even if you just want to do something uh, scaled down or not quite as dramatic. And so the idea here with these learning projects is yes, a lot of the ones that I will uh, talk about and I do mention are these kind of of this extreme grandiose Herculean efforts to uh, accomplish something. But I think at the same time, what matters isn't so much are you spending, you know, 30, 40, 80 hours a week learning but what are you doing with each of those hours? And so all of the principles I discuss in the book, none of them are like, there isn't one principle, okay, you know, spend 80 hours a week, that's not a principle. All the principles have to do with the mechanics of learning. So I'm really just trying to use these stories as examples so you can clearly see what these principles are. And so even if you only have 10 minutes a day, you can still align that 10 minutes along with these principles and get better results. And I think the problem is that a lot of people aren't sure, they don't know what the principles are, and they don't really see how they relate to what they're doing. And so they do a project that, let's say, it's, you know, they're only spending 15 minutes learning this thing that they want to learn, or they're spending, you know, an hour or two at their job trying to get better at a professional skill, and they don't realize how they misalign their project with the principles of cognitive science. And so they don't actually make the progress that they want. And so a clear example of that is people who want to learn a language. So we've been using the language learning example, but it's kind of my favorite one to pick on on the, you know, all the ways that people teach them badly. But a common thing people do is play on Duolingo or just these apps for, for learning a language. And the problem, and it relates to this idea of directness that we just talked about, is that, you know, some of the exercises that they have you go through, which is like they'll give you a sentence in English and then you have to like tap the words. And there's like a word bank of about 15 words and about eight of them actually appear in the sentence. And that's the activity of, of tapping on those to make a sentence. Well, actually speaking a language is nothing like this, that you actually have to recall the words from memory. You have to produce them with your mouth. You have to actually do this in a fluent way. So you have to retrieve it in real time. And so... For, you can spend months and months doing this and not actually develop that much of the skills that is actually required to speak a language. And so I think the problem is that a lot of people who do these kinds of apps or do these ineffective strategies, they are kind of casually doing it. They are doing it as a dabbling sort of thing. So they're not being super serious. But the danger here is they don't even realize they're not using an effective approach. And so six, nine months pass, they've been playing on their phone doing this activity they go to travel some country, they want to speak the language, they don't do it very well. And so they say to themselves, oh, well, you know, I wasn't really trying very hard. So much. I just must not have been putting in the right effort. And they don't even realize that if they had changed their method, they would have gotten better results. So, I mean, we're talking about language learning here, but really it applies to so many different fields. Well, one of your principles is retrieval, you know, and mm-hmm. you were just talking about that. And Scott, in the chapter on yeah. retrieval, you speak 
that retrieval works, but it's not easy. You state that, mm-hmm. that not only is the effort itself an obstacle, but sometimes it's not clear exactly how to do it. Mm-hmm. What are some of the tactics that you would tell our listeners to use when using, I mean, we've got retrieval and we've got focus mm-hmm. and we're going to go into some of the others, but yeah. in this particular one, um, I think it is about retrieving. You're learning something brand new and mm-hmm. it's finding a place to store it in that brain of yours, that cognition mm-hmm. and having recall, right? Yeah. And especially a language, it's really all about recall. So what are some so, of the tactics? Right. So I think this is this is very important because I think one of the, again, related to this principles of cognitive science, and if I can just add a little bit here, I think a useful way of thinking about this principle is that a lot of the difficulties we have in learning is not in putting the information in our brain so that it just exists somewhere in our brain. The difficulty is putting it in such a way so that when we are in a situation where we need it, we are able to retrieve it. So it's this access later that is often more of a difficulty than simply having it somewhere in our mind. So certainly transfer is related to that, but retrieval is also related to that. So the idea behind retrieval is that you are far better off if you have to do anything where you have to remember something later, you're far better off practicing remembering it. So, you know, closing the book, you know, pausing the podcast, doing whatever, and trying to remember what you, what you covered, what you learned, then you are just reviewing your notes or reading it again or repeatedly reviewing it over and over again, which is a very common approach many students use for studying. And so the challenge, and I think you're absolutely right, the challenge is that a lot of people don't want to do retrieval practice. So obviously, if you are you know, studying for a big test and you're anxious about how you're going to do on that test, and you close the book and you try to remember something and you just draw a blank, you don't remember anything, that's an uncomfortable feeling. And so a lot of people would rather not do that because it brings up these anxieties about how they're going to do on the test. And so they would rather, you know, okay, well, let's read through the book a few times first before we try to do something like this. And so part of the issue is that people aren't aware of just how much of a gap there is in effectiveness between just reviewing something and actually practicing retrieval. So part of it is just a knowledge problem that a lot of people aren't aware that, you know, you know, retranscribing your notes is not an effective studying tactic. That's just not something that we're taught in school often. But also part of the problem is that people aren't aware that this difficulty or this sort of uncomfortable feeling you generate is part of the reason that it works so well. And so I think one of the challenges, again, is that even if you explain this finding to some people, they will say to themselves, well, but I'm not ready yet. I'd like to just review a few more times before I do this practice. And there actually are studies, which I talk about in the book, where, you know, if you give students a choice of how they're going to study, a lot of them will choose to do this sort of repeated review strategy, which isn't very effective, especially poor performing students. But if you force them to do retrieval, if you force them to do things like flashcards or free recall or, you know, asking yourself questions or covering up pages of the book and trying to recall what's in it. If you force them to do strategies like this, they actually perform better on tests. So this is an example where I think not only do we have the wrong intuitions about how to study, so we have these sort of wrong hardwired approaches to learning a lot of things, but then also, you know, the, the right and the effective tactic is a little bit more difficult, which is why tend not to do it accidentally. You tend not to do it unless you have some understanding that it will be more effective. 
you know, this is an off the wall question, but what are the um, statistics like? I mean, you know, there are people that are auditory or kinesthetic or visual learners. We always used to talk about this, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in in your process, this ultra learning process, um, if you have people that use all those modalities of learning, um, how does that work in ultra learning? Do you just tell them to choose the one that really sticks with them the most if they're a visual learner or, or so an auditory learner? So this is learner? something I didn't, yeah, so this is something I didn't cover specifically in the book. And I'd highly recommend uh, both yourself and, and to anyone listening to this right now to check out uh, the work on learning styles by Daniel Willingham. So Daniel Willingham is a cognitive uh, educate, or sorry, a Harvard-educated cognitive psychologist, and he's done a bunch of work uh, on the learning styles research. And it turns out that um, there's something related to learning styles. It's true, but the learning styles hypothesis itself, which is that um, we have different modalities of learning, and that if you present information in that modality, that you will learn better in that modality. Um, turns out to not have a lot of research supporting it. So I didn't talk about it in my book because the actual cognitive science research tends to weigh against that. Now, there's a lot of different variants of the learning style hypothesis. So I I would, again, recommend looking at Daniel Willingham because he does a more comprehensive overview than I can. But one of the things that is true that's related to that, and I'll just sort of explain why people think that learning styles is true, is that people do tend to have different modalities that they're good at. So some people are better at visual spatial stuff. Some people are maybe better at phonological stuff or musical stuff. Some people might be better at, um, you know, different modalities, kinesthetic stuff, sports, athletics. Um, What the challenge is just that it's the conversion of the information into different modalities tends not to help quite as much. So there might be some people that have a better ear for picking up accents and languages, for instance, but presenting that information visually to a visual learner, um, it doesn't seem to have the kind of impact it would do. So it is something that's interesting. Uh, I didn't cover it in ultra learning because I think that it doesn't have very strong implications for how you ought to learn. But I think the most important thing is, again, related to what we were talking about before, which is that when you are being presented information in the first place, so whether that's listening to a podcast like this one, whether you're reading a book, whether you are you know, out in the world, like having some person, you know, show you what to do. I think the important thing, again, is that we see that this is a a first step to getting to learning. And then the actual learning or a lot of the learning actually takes place when we are doing some kind of practice, when we're having to actually retrieve it in an actual situation. And so this was sort of a main message of my book is that trying to move away from thinking of learning as passively receiving information and seeing it more as either actively constructing that knowledge or, or, or doing something to actually have that information in your head. Well, I would say, like I say, there's a lot of practical advice here. There's also mm-hmm. many stories that people can learn from. A lot of people learn from stories themselves. Um, it's always good to put those in there and you've done a great job of sprinkling them throughout the book. Now in your chapter on focus, you point out three problems that people encounter um, when going about becoming an ultra learner, mm-hmm. if you would tell them, you know, we haven't gone through all nine principles yet. Right. <laughs> and them. We're kind of dotting around here on some of these, yeah. but, um, what, what are the challenges, um, that when you're, when people who are going to become an ultra learner might face in the focus area? 
So because focus is kind of, focus again, is, is probably yeah. my hardest one. Is <laughs> I think it's the hardest one for a lot of people. And I think it's, it's kind of an obvious one that if you want to do something that is mentally demanding, and of course, you know, ultra learning certainly is up there for things that are mentally demanding, but even any kind of learning, really, even if you don't consider yourself an ultra learner or what you're doing is ultra learning, even doing something that's a little bit lower key or lower intensity still requires focus. And so the idea of focus is that I kind of break it into three different parts. So one of them is getting started focusing, which is, you know, the perennial problem of procrastination. And for this problem, I think one of the main things that I like to think about it as is that the first thing to do is to try to build your awareness of when you're actually procrastinating. Because I think a lot of us, we have some urge not to do something. And that mental feeling that we have, just sort of like, ugh, I don't want to do this, we have to justify it. And so we come up with some reasoning of, well, you know, I'm not going to do this. And then you come up with some trivial excuse like, well, I'm not going to do this because, you know, I'm not going to go to the gym because uh, my, you know, I have old shoes and they're, they're not very good. And I'll wait till I buy new shoes first. Or, or you say something like, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn this language, but, you know, I don't quite know where to start. So let's, let's put that off right now and, and, and do this. And so it's not the problem that you're making these kinds of rationalizations. The problem is just that you don't realize what you're actually doing, that you have an aversion to doing this. You feel kind of pushed away from doing this. And instead of just acknowledging that feeling that, ah, you know, this is kind of frustrating. I'm not sure whether I want to do this right now. You come up with some sort of roundabout excuse to preserve your sort of self-esteem of like, well, this is too frustrating. You say to yourself, well, you know, I've got some other reason why I don't want to do this. And so procrastination, I think the first step is coming over this awareness. And then once you have that awareness, there's a lot of different tools that, you know, I talk about some of them in the book that you can apply to overcome it, but it only works once you sort of acknowledge that you're actually procrastinating. So the other, um, the other sort of breakdown, so procrastination was the first part, is when you are in the middle of doing something and you lose your focus. So this is commonly known as distraction. And distraction not only happens because we have pings from our phone and our email and you know people knock on our door and, and wanna to talk to us, but also internally. So you're in the middle of a task and just the same way with procrastination, something frustrating or, or like unpleasant happens, you get a question wrong, this kind of thing. And your brain says, we should stop doing this. Let's go do something else, right? Let's go get a piece of cake or something. And so the, the, the thing again here is to just not only help try to cultivate an environment where distractions are more minimal, that's something fairly clear and obvious, but also again, to be aware of how we do feel these momentary pangs of distraction or momentary pangs of let's go do something else and how do you sit with those so one of the examples i give in the book is that when i was learning uh, chinese i did do quite a bit of flashcards that was one of the things i did for that particular project and i would find when i would do the flashcards and i would get a question wrong i would immediately feel this urge to let's okay let's stop for right now I, i'm you know i've had enough of this right and the the thing was is that I realized that this moment actually only lasts for maybe, you know, maybe 10 seconds. It doesn't even last that long. And so the rule I made for myself, because each flashcard I was doing was only took me like 15, 20 seconds, was that once I had failed a flashcard, or sorry, once I had failed a flashcard and I felt the urge to quit, that I could only take a break if I had gotten the most recent flashcard right. 
And usually that would be right around the corner, so less than a minute away. So this isn't usually a major problem. But as soon as you start getting them right again, oh, now the task isn't so bad. Actually, I'm not so downright. I can actually do this. And so it's funny how often these little moments of frustration, these little moments of difficulty just turn into total stopping points for our learning effort because we react to them immediately. Whereas if you recognize, okay, if you even just set yourself a timer, so, you know, next time I'm feeling frustrated, I set myself a five-minute timer, and if I'm still feeling stuck after five minutes, okay, then I can take a break. If you just did that step, you would persist far longer on most difficult tasks, learning or otherwise. And then the final one that I, I, I break down, because you mentioned the three, was just maintaining the right kind of focus. And it turns out that being the most alert, sharpest focus you can be is not always effective for learning, and that sometimes having a sort of more diffuse kind of focus is, uh, is a little better for more creative tasks. Well, I think that the advice that you provide throughout the book, whether it's, you know, how people get stuck when they go into this process, it's just stuck into learning anyway, you know, because mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have not taken on uh, becoming continual learners, but in this world, you have to become a continual learner. And speaking as someone who was a continual learner, in the chapter on drill, you speak about Benjamin Franklin. Mm, now, yeah. All of our historians out there recognize all the things Benjamin Franklin did. It almost seems like he had his hand in, in everything is what it, mm -hmm. it, it seems like when you read the history books. What can you tell our listeners about Benjamin Franklin? And, you know, you refer to him as an ultra learner. Yeah. So, well... This is the thing. So, again, with a lot of these famous people and really famous, successful people in many cases, often, you know, what did this person do to learn things well is very rarely the focus of a biography. So I think one of the goals that I had in, in surfacing these stories for this book was to look at people that you may have heard of, but that maybe you didn't know about some of the approaches that they took to mastery or to getting better at things because their authors were, you know, perhaps quite deservedly so more interested in their accomplishments when they had already reached a kind of stature of eminence in their field. And so Benjamin Franklin is a very interesting one because he wrote, uh, you know, really the first autobiography. Uh, and in it, he talks about his childhood experiences of getting better at writing. And writing, I think, for Benjamin Franklin was not just you know, this wasn't just one of his skills. I think it was the skill. It was the thing that really underlied his success in everything else. So his ability to be a persuasive writer was sort of instrumental in not only his, you know, economic success, his entrepreneurial success, but even his scientific success and diplomatic success and political success were all built off of this fundamental skill of being good at writing. And in his autobiography, he talks about being a kid, being apprenticed to his brother's print shop, and really about the kind of various schemes that he used to get better at writing. So one of them that he used, which I don't know whether I would do this exact drill itself, but I think it shows this kind of thought process that he took towards getting better at writing. And, and he was quite early on in his writing process with this, but basically he would do something similar to this sort of free recall position where he would read an essay he liked, and then he would try to recreate it um, you know, maybe given some simple prompts or maybe given no prompts at all, or maybe he would shuffle up the order and he would have to try to figure out what is the right order to put it back into. And so doing this, he kind of got better at how do people structure essays uh, professionally or how do people structure their arguments well. And then he, you know, there's various other stories, a little anecdotes he tells about how he modified his writing approach or his communication style 
um, to better persuade the audience. Uh, you know, he practiced writing in the form of different characters. I mean, his Poor Richard's Almanac, which was the thing that made him super successful, was written in the perspective of Richard Saunders and his wife, um, you know, poor farmers, which were nothing like Benjamin Franklin, but he adopted this perspective in order to communicate. And so I think, you know, if you look at some of these little examples, not that you should necessarily do exactly what Benjamin Franklin did, but you can see how someone got better at their craft by being very deliberate about it. And in this case, with this principle on drill, about breaking down a complicated skill into components so that you can work on them individually and then later bring them back to the main task that you're trying to get good at. Yeah, I don't know if this is true, but I remember this from people mm -hmm. telling the story or not. Maybe you can validate it. That <laughs> you know, He used to sit in a rocking chair with a bucket and a rock in his hand, and he used to get to an alpha state and when he would just get to sleep, his hand would open up and it would hit the bucket and it would make a big clang and wake him up. And as he's trying to make his inventions, he was actually trying to get that altered state of consciousness, um, which was in that alpha state. And I thought that was pretty fascinating and pretty ingenious that he came up with a way to, you know, get to where he wanted to and then to figure out, you know... <laughs> how to do that I've, yeah i don't know about the i don't know how whether that story is true but i know i heard a similar story about thomas edison so maybe mm -hmm. uh you know obviously the you know founder of ge and like one of the maybe it was edison American maybe i'm confusing the two guys but one of them yeah but it was benjamin franklin that. certainly was inventive too you know he was one of the prime discoverers of electricity and like yes. you know yes. it's it's because of him that we we you know have a lot of our inventions these days and so um you know, he was certainly wildly accomplished uh and i think studying the learning process of people who've been quite successful in the past i think they can provide clues i don't think they all, they provide the complete answer which is why i try to include science and research of people who've studied these questions but i think they're a useful pairing for that because you know, laboratory experiments can often reveal certain principles, but then we hope to find these principles in the real world. Otherwise, they might just be, you know, some weird quirk of a particular experimental environment. And so, I don't know, I tried when putting this book together to, you know, only combine my own experience, but other people's experience in science to try to give the best, the most complete picture that I thought I could for how someone could learn more effectively. Well, all of them, including Nikola Tesla, you know, you, you look at them and you say, wow, you, you look at the, mm -hmm. just the advancements of, of the things that have happened as a result of these type of inventors, Thomas Edison mm -hmm. and Benjamin Franklin and Tesla and so on. And it's, it's really phenomenal. Now, uh, let's point out for the listeners, these nine universal principles that are underlying sure. the, the ultra learning process. We've gone through them again. But if you would, mm -hmm. to kind of wrap up our interview, I think it'd be a good, good way to do it. And it's on page 48 in the book for those of you who are listening <laughs> that have the book. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a great opportunity for us to to hear from you, Scott, what those principles are and real briefly right. how how they might be able to apply them. So uh, so I'll just try to be real brief because there, as I said, there are lines here. So we'll, 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 we'll uh, talk to the listeners here off. But the first principle is meta-learning, and meta-learning basically means learning about learning, and this is particularly important if you are undertaking any self-directed project to improve anything, really, is that you first have to understand what's the right way to learn it. And this doesn't just mean in terms of general strategies like I'm outlining here, but very specifically, you know, what is involved in getting good at this skill or acquiring this knowledge. And so I think 
one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they just grab the first book off the shelf, the first thing that gets recommended to them, and they don't do any research to figure out what actually works and what doesn't work. And, and they don't do any of this sort of digging down, and especially for difficult skills, like if you wanted to learn programming or public speaking or painting or, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to get good at, if you do a little bit of research first, you can get a much better plan than if you just sort of, you know, grab the first book off the shelf. The second principle we already talked about is focus, and focus is obviously related to the idea that in order to learn well, we need to sustain our attention on difficult things. And so focus is not only about how do we you know, avoid distraction, but how do we persist through frustrations and obstacles? Because learning is mentally demanding. And so if you don't have the right approach to it, it's very easy to get too frustrated and give up on things uh, well before you're able to become proficient in them. Um, the third principle, again, we talked about was directness, which is this idea that transfer is hard. And so you ought to learn directly practicing the things that you want to get good at. Uh, number four, related to Benjamin Franklin, is drill, which is, again, the idea that in complement to directness, when you are struggling with a skill or when you're trying to improve but you're not making as much improvement just doing it, you need to break the skill down into components and work on those individually. After that, uh, I believe the next principle is retrieval. So retrieval is, again, what we were talking about before, that if you want to be able to remember something, you need to practice retrieving it from memory and not simply looking it over or reviewing it. If we're going to talk about, um, you know, not only in the context of passing tests, where obviously this is super important, but even in situations where you need to have knowledge at hand. So languages or programming or all sorts of situations where you need to have knowledge at your fingertips. It's, it's sometimes either the case that you can't look it up because it's the it takes too long to look something up or it might even be the case that you need to retrieval because if you don't practice retrieval you won't even know that you need to look something up so that's also another reason to practice it the next principle is feedback and feedback is a super interesting super complicated and nuanced subject generally speaking you want to get more feedback and feedback is very important for learning but there's also important areas where there are downsides or places where it backfires and even situations where people read too much into feedback and they think they're getting information that they're actually not. So I cover a lot of the little nuances and ins and outs of that research in my book. Um, the next principle is retention, because obviously it's not enough to learn something. You actually need to retain it and have it persist with you over time. You say you don't say true. on this one, Scott, don't sure. fill a leaky bucket. What do you mean by yeah. that? Well, don't fill a leaky bucket basically means if you have a strategy for learning which doesn't uh, sustain or retain knowledge in the long term, then you are essentially doing a lot of labor to have it all evaporate down the road. Now, it is the case that our minds are leaky in the sense that it's not possible to remember something and then have it be permanently remembered, at least for most types of memory. However, there are definitely wide gulfs of strategies between things that tend to result in very short retention periods versus things that result in longer retention periods. So we already talked about one of them, which is retrieval, but even one of the things that psychologists have known for decades is called the spacing effect, which is that if you mass or cram a bunch of exposure to information over a very short period of time, you will retain it for a far shorter period than if you took the same amount of time, exact same number of hours and minutes, but you spread it over a longer period of time, you would actually remember the information far longer. So this has lots of implications for how you study in classes, but indeed 
how you remember all sorts of skills because if you do something over a very short time frame, it will also tend to be the case that that knowledge doesn't last quite as long. And I then there's also other... On, I love your mm-hmm. one on uh, intuition, dig deep before yeah. building up. You know, I wrote a book on intuition, so it uh, mm. actually um, uh, impresses me that it is part of your ultra learning process. So what is dig deep before building up? Right. So intuition is kind of an interesting principle because it sort of has two main ideas. So the, the first idea is sort of how do people even have an intuition? How do they have a deep understanding of things? Because often we have the sense that people who, you know, look at some complicated physics equation and then, you know, like you see the stereotype in movies, Hollywood movies, where it's like the super genius who's looking at all those equations in the blackboard and then like formulas are running by his eyes and and he can just come up, pull out the answer, and oh, wow, this person must just be a genius. And what I found from doing the research is that while there are differences in people who are smart and less smart at certain subjects, that inevitably people who are able to do this have just built huge libraries of patterns through actual exposure working with those problems. So it's not the case that someone is just some genius and they can just look at a huge math board, come up with the right answer without having that deeper background knowledge. And then the second part of the principle is really how do you get that intuition? How do you get that deep understanding? And so part of that is kind of just as already mentioned is doing the things that we talked about, having massive exposure, having direct practice, practicing retrieval. These things do matter. But then in particular, when it comes to understanding, often there are barriers to understanding. So you learn calculus and you don't understand it, or you learn physics and you don't understand what the teacher's talking about, or you try to learn a programming language and it all looks like gibberish to you. And so in this place, I outline some simple techniques that you can apply that will help break down the obstacles to understanding. So even if it's still work to get it an understanding, there is an inroad there. So it's not just the case that, well, I don't understand it. I guess I can't learn this subject that you can actually proceed forward and proceed forward, even though you maybe don't have the best book or teacher to help you. Hmm. It's good advice. Now, experimentation, explore outside your comfort zone. That's the last of the nine. Right. Uh, And we will wrap it up with that for our listeners. Yeah. So experimentation is really the crux of experimentation is just that all of these principles, all the ideas, all the strategies I'm suggesting, they don't mean a darn if you don't actually try things out, see what's working and make modifications to your approach. And this is a harder thing to illustrate when I talk about things because I kind of have a phrase that like everyone wants the recipe, but what you really need to learn is how to taste. And so everyone is looking for this step-by-step formula that will make success. They want bullet points, point one, point two, point three, point four. And I'm not saying that these can't be helpful or, or maybe not helpful in the beginning. Certainly if you're learning to cook, it helps to know a few recipes. But at the same time, being really good at this and to really get the results that I'm describing in the book is a process of feeling things out that you have to approach something. You try something that you think might work and maybe it will work and maybe it'll work brilliantly, but it might also not work. And then you need to sense when it's not working and adjust your approach. And so just as, you know, driving a car, if you just follow Google Maps and then it sends you off of a bridge, that's not being a very smart driver. Similarly with learning, if you're reading my book, and it says to drive right into the river, you know, maybe you need to make a little detour. And so experimentation <laughs> yeah. was a principle I included because it's very important to cultivate that attitude that these are just starting points. These are just tools. These are just useful ideas. And this applies certainly to learning, but, but everything else that you're doing in life that you have to be willing to experiment. You have to be willing to try stuff. And really, you have to be willing to fail sometimes in order to really succeed. 
Well, Scott, you have created a book that gives people a way to start, I think for even a lot of people, just learning period. But I mean, if you're going to become an ultra learner, you're going to want to go to Scott's website. It's uh, Scott H. Young, that's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. There you're going to see his blog, ultra learning challenges, the challenges that he gave himself, um, the products, the podcast. He's got podcasts out there that are definitely worth listening to. Um, with some of the people we've already spoken about, uh, he's got a podcast with Cal Newport. Um, he's got a podcast with James Clear. So they're worth going to, listening to, and learning more about what Scott's doing. And his new book is called Ultra Learning, Mastering Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your uh, your Career. Scott, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with our uh, our listeners. Uh, sharing your words of wisdom. Thank you so much.